So what you're about to hear is the live show that we recorded in Brooklyn, in New York City, in May of 2019, May 15th. And I took advantage of the live show format to use a lot of visual examples, images and illustrations and that sort of thing. I took out the videos in the edited audio, but I left in the talk about all the images and stuff. So in the show, you're going to hear me like you hear me now dropping in and giving some descriptions here and there. But if you'd like to see the visuals from the show, those images and the video of the entire event are both available at youarenotsosmart.com and the You're Not So Smart Facebook page and the You're Not So Smart YouTube channel. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for the episode, both in your podcast program in the description in there and over at the website. Now, most of all, what you'll need in your brain for reference in this episode is what the internet collectively refers to as the dress. The image that went viral a few years back of a dress that for some people appears as one color and for others appears as another. So if you have never experienced that image, it's sort of the centerpiece of the entire live show. Now would be a good time to pause and go take a look at it. You can search for the dress and it should come up right away. It has its own Wikipedia page. And if not, you can search for the dress illusion and you should be able to see it. Also, the live show was a little more than two hours long, and so to help you get to the parts that you'd most like to listen to, if you don't plan to start at the beginning, here's the time codes for different segments. I introduce the guests at about 13 minutes in. We begin exploring the dress itself at about 41 minutes in, and we discuss the political implications of all of this at about one hour and 10 minutes in. Also, this was a really great event. I hope you get a chance to come to the next live show that we do. And if you would like there to be a live show in your town and you know a venue that would like to do it, just contact me through Twitter or the website and we'll see if we can get to your town, to your venue, to do this show. All right, here we go. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 155, live from New York City. Oh my God, we are in New York City, we are in Brooklyn, we are at the Bell House, and we are going to talk about post-truth. What is the truth? How can we all find out what the truth is? How do brains turn perception into reality? What happens when we all disagree on what that reality is, and how do we make sense of the world when we don't all seem to have the same reality in all of our brains? We're going to talk to three experts about that today, and um, why do I want to talk about this as our first live show? Well... I don't, know if you've no, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, things have gotten really weird out there, right? This word, post-truth, became uh, Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016. And when the Washington Post wrote about this, they said, it's official, the truth is dead. Facts are passe. That's really terrifying to read as a lead in an article in a major publication like this. But that started a cascade effect where we had other publications say something similar. We had uh, the New York Times say we're in the age of post-truth politics. We had New Yorkers say that 
facts aren't going to change our minds anymore. The Atlantic said this article is not going to change your mind about how people aren't going to change their mind when they read articles about how people don't change their mind. And then Vox said America is facing an epistemic crisis, going for the highbrow there. And then Time was like, we are above all of this hyperbolic nonsense. Mother of God, is truth dead? And maybe so. It was almost as if people had never seen this before, but there was something that had happened in all of our lives right before this, about a year before the Trump stuff started happening, we all were engaged in an all-out war on the internet that nearly cracked the planet in two. I don't know if you recall this, but you probably were embroiled in this controversy yourself. That was when the dress appeared. The dress. So, um, you all seem like very reasonable people to me. You're all here uh, for, uh, to be part of this wonderful podcast, and you all are probably great critical thinkers, and we probably all kind of have the same reality in our heads. This doesn't always come through when it's projected on screen, but let's see. Uh, how many people here, whether or not you're seeing it now or you remember you saw it, were blue-brown people? By show of hands. All right. And who are the yellow-white people? All right. Or golden white, right? So some people look at this and they see a dress that's gold and white, and some people see this and they see a dress that's blue and brown. And on the internet, this, if you, if you never heard the story behind this, what happened was there was a wedding in Scotland and the mother of the bride was picking out a dress to wear. She showed that, she took a picture of it, she showed it to her uh, family, and they couldn't agree on what the color of the dress was. And when they actually had the wedding, people were passing it around, the band started passing this picture around, and it found its way onto the internet, it found its way onto social media. When it hit social media, I have this in front of me, BuzzFeed's Tumblr was the first place this went up. Uh, the first day this went up, before it went mega viral, it was getting 14,000 shares a second. <laughs> One million a minute. And all, all people were asking was, what color do you see? And when they say it's a different color than I saw, they were like, what's happening? Where's the, how could this be true? And, People get really upset about it, like, you must be insane, right? And on Twitter, people who first shared this before it went mega viral, it would crash their phones when they would open up Twitter because people would share it so quickly. And when Wired Magazine put out the first big article about it, they got 33 million page views on the first day. And of course, celebrities began to chime in. Uh, <laughs> I love these celebrity tweets because they remind me of what was going on. We got these hashtags that appeared. These hashtags are still out there if you want to play with them. Washington Post said, this is a drama that has divided the planet. <laughs> Taylor Swift, I don't understand this dress. It's like a, a trick or somehow. Obviously, I, I'm confused and scared. It's black and blue. And uh, Kim Kardashian, what color is the dress? I see gold and white, but Kanye sees black and blue. Who's colorblind? Uh, BJ Novak, it's white and gold. Minnie Kaling, it's blue and black. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> And this seems to be the level of discourse on this, right? Like, we are all like, what's going on, right? <laughs> then this happened. This was a new type of content that people could use to get page views because they, it, it did what is happening in political discourse a, little, a couple years later. We're all seeing the same evidence, but we're feeling like there's two different truths. So, if the dress didn't work on you, I want you to listen to this and tell me, do you hear Yanny? Or do you hear Laurel? Laurel. Laurel. 
Laurel. Laurel. Laurel. Laurel. Laurel. Laurel. Okay, by show of hands, who here's Yanny? What? What? <laughs> by, <laughs> by show of hands, who here is Laurel? Okay. By show of hands, who is pretty sure you're right and they're wrong? <laughs> uh, and can you imagine getting into an argument about this on the internet? Like, I, you can't not hear what you hear. I'm going to play it one more time because I want you to try to hear. If you heard Yanny, try to hear Laurel. If you heard Laurel, try to, try to see things, try to hear things from the other person's perspective. Laurel. 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 Oh my God, what is the truth? What is the truth? Why can't we agree? Are we living in a post-truth era? Did we ever live in an era where this wasn't how things worked? Has there ever been a truth era? I don't know, but to help us make sense of this night, I've invited three incredibly smart people. Three guests are gonna join me right now. Please welcome to the stage and give a round of applause to Maria Dillon, Pascal Wallace, and Jay Van Bavel. Join me. Join me in my special living room here. Um, this is a very diverse group of people who study all sorts of different elements of reasoning and uh, how we turn perceptions into reality. Thank you for being here, everyone. Um, so I'm going to start. We're going to talk to everybody a little bit individually, and then we'll get to a group thing. I'm going to start with you, uh, Maura. What is it that you do exactly? I study spatial cognitive development, and my aim is to understand abstract thought. Oh my God. And you do this with uh, children a lot, right? I study um, human participants from very small infants, about the age of three months, all the way through adults. Oh my God. So I'm, I'm gonna, listen, I have some uh, slides here of some of the stuff you do. I don't know. You can see it over here. You don't have to create What we're seeing here is an image of a room with large, flat, square-like objects standing near its walls. And also, there's another image of a model of that room with identical features. In the drawings, we can see that when children draw the room, they tend to ignore the walls. That is, they don't draw the room itself. But when they draw the toy, they draw the room and the stuff inside. Okay, so this is an example of an experiment that we've done with four-year-old children. So on the top, what you can see is a small, definitely New York-sized fort. So it's supposed to be a navigable environment, but it is New York City after all, so it's about six foot by seven foot. And a child sits at the front of this fort, and we ask them to draw everything that they see. Um, and at the bottom, we have a toy model of the fort that we just call a toy, and we ask them the same thing, to just draw everything that they see. And what do you learn from this? So, um, do you have the sample kids' drawings? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Boom. Okay. 
So here is an example characteristic of what a four-year-old child might draw in the fort condition and in the toy condition. And I should mention this is work done with my doctoral student, Caitlin McGuire, who is here tonight. And uh, what kids draw in the fort condition is basically just the objects that they can see, and they leave out the surrounding layout, they leave out the walls. In the toy condition, they draw everything. So what we're really interested in, in what are what kinds of perceptual and cognitive biases children might have that might emerge early in human development that might translate into you know, a uniquely human act and in what way. So we think of art and picture making as something that's subject to no constraints, it's free expression. Nevertheless, there may be certain cognitive constraints or cognitive biases that, we, uh, that emerge early in human development and that we've even inherited from other animal species that play out in these uniquely human symbolic expressions like our picture making. And so, for example, what we find is that when kids make pictures, they're uh, more likely to depict object information versus layout information, and we can relate these kinds of tendencies in something like kids' picture-making to the, uh, the phylogenetic inheritances that we have to kind of navigate large-scale spaces and recognize the objects in those spaces. Um, I love that you study children's drawings. Me too. <laughs> uh, um, so I have to admit, I, I wanted to bring you on to talk about, uh, although your work is amazing, uh, the fact that you study how we, at the very earliest ages, turn perception into reality. I wanted to talk to you about this because the idea that um, what we are seeing with our eyes and then what we are imagining in our personal subjective reality can be not exactly the same thing. You've said very brain-bending things to me, like it's perception of perception of perception. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, I want to bring you on because I want to talk about... Um, I mean, this is something that is my eyes are putting into my brain, and my brain is then looking at it. And we're going to, uh, Pascal, we're going to talk in a minute about he's done the actual research into why this happened. I want to back up from this. Sure. Okay, because as we've shown with Yanni and Laurel, and we've shown with the, uh, the dress, that in, everyone here doesn't have the same subjective reality when it comes to certain aspects of what we're all talking about. There are two different realities, at least, when it comes to this, happening right here in this room all together. And, um, but... You know, I want to talk about something that we probably can all agree on. I want to, there's this one reality we can agree on, okay? So I want you to take a look at this picture. And uh, a, a and B, uh, well, here's the thing. Um, there's a very Orwellian thing I'm going to say, and I really mean this. I want you to deny the truth of your own eyes. What we're looking at here is an illustration of a checkerboard with a large green cylinder standing in the upper right corner of the board. The cylinder is casting a shadow across the board, and one of the dark squares outside the shadow is labeled A. One of the light squares inside the shadow is labeled B. Although it appears as if square A is dark and square B is light, when you use Photoshop to move the squares closer together, they then appear as the same color, because they are. I want you to believe me and trust me when I tell you that squares A and B are the exact same color. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen this before, but I hope, because I still, I've seen this a thousand times, and I still don't like it at all. <laughs> uh, I don't want that to be true. And um, I uh, had to actually put this in Photoshop before we went here, and I want to show you my amazing Photoshop skills. Um, and I'm going to prove this to all of us. Uh, I, I captured this just yesterday. I'm going to grab the square, and we're going to move it down, and yeah, there it goes. Oh, yeah. Ah, bip, bop, bip, boop, yep. 
Uh, and uh, I, I really, I can't believe it still, so I'm going to move this one up. Uh, forget how Photoshop works. And then, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes. And so then we put them uh, side by side. Maura, I don't like this. <laughs> I love it. I study stuff like this. Spend lots of my time doing stuff like this. Okay, good. Yeah. Then uh, please. Okay. Uh, what is going on? Okay. So visual illusions are really specific, kind of rarefied, uh, usually static pictures like this one that kind of um, find a moment in our visual processing, our brain's processing of visual information, um, where the assumption or the inference that our brain makes is wrong. So the brain sort of insists on, and these are, this is a kind of characterization that Mark Changizi has written about. The brain sort of insists on a certain interpretation of a visual stimulus, like, for example, the color of these, uh, these two gray blocks. Um, and it insists on this because it thinks it's right about what, we're, what the percept should be. And often what the brain or what the visual system is doing is taking into account the context of the information that's being presented. So this is a case of contrast where the, uh, the visual system recognizes that, the, uh, that one square is in a lit context and that another square is in a shadowed context. And so um, it highlights that there should be a different based on, difference based on context of the two grays that we're looking at. Um, so the idea is that in most cases, our brain and our visual system is actually being adaptive, taking into account the context in which visual information is presented and highlighting whatever differences should be there. In cases, in sort of static, rarefied cases like this, however, it gets tripped up a bit since the colors are actually the same. Here's the thing that bothers me about this. I, you're saying the brain, and this yeah. is a weird thing we have to do when we talk about this stuff, because I, like I, mean, I like to think the brain is me. And you're saying that there's a there's a part of me that is lying to another part of me. Like, I, the brain, you said it insists. Yes. That's and Mark Changizi's phrase. I insists. would like I to have a say though. in this at this point. And um, how is that possible that a part of me is um, not showing me the truth of this image and I have to just accept it? It just has to happen. There's a lot of unconscious processing of basic visual information out in the world that it's actually best that you don't know about. Right? <laughs> You'd be probably bored with the operations that were going on mm, um, okay, at these well. basic levels of perception. So the brain does a lot of this work for us, and, um, and most of the time it's really adaptive to the natural and artificial environments that we live in and grow up in. And our ancestors who have eyes similar like to us, our, our evolutionary ancestors that have eyes similar to us, um, had, to, had to face as well. Well, I think this is important for the discussion that we want, I want to have today because um, this is um, this is happening. What's happening with the dress is also happening here in a way, at least for the way I'm understanding it. Please correct me when I'm wrong, and I will be wrong a lot. That the uh, I don't have a choice in what I see when it comes to the dress either, and we'll explain later what's happening there. But I don't have a choice with this. I don't have a choice with any of these illusions. I have some other illusions here. Um, let's see. The image up on the screen right now is of a strawberry tart under a blue filter, and it appears as though the strawberries in the image are red. The prince of this one. Um, the, the lab I got this from said that there are no red pixels in this image. Sure. 
but there are red strawberries. So that's the important part. This, instead of being a case of contrast, is a case of constancy. So we see different objects out in the world under all sorts of different lighting conditions, and it's really beneficial for us to be able to identify those objects as the same objects regardless of what light or colored light they're being presented in. So this is a case where you'd be able to recognize that red strawberry, whether there was a blue wash over it or a yellow wash over it, and what the visual system is inferring is that the source of the information is actually constant across these different lighting conditions. But there are no red pixels in this picture. <laughs> but your brain is so amazing. Uh, uh, I don't know if this works in a big crowd. Does this seem like this is moving to you? This is a static image. The image that we're looking at right now is a field of blue dots on a green background. And each dot has a light edge and a dark edge. And those edges are slightly rotated for each dot as you move down the rows. Uh, this is not a video. What's going on here? So this one has to do, um, we think, with um, so these kind of movement intuitions that we get about our sort of the perceptive, uh, perception of movement happening in these images has to do, we think, with temporal differences in the way that light and dark information is processed. So you can see around each of these little blue dots, and usually these work best with high contrast colors. There are also these black and white um, sort of surround and sort of a sawtooth. And what this does is the white information is processed a little bit more quickly than the dark information, and so it gives your, it kind of tricks your visual system into thinking there's some kind of, of movement happening. Um, and this is, this is particularly cool and in terms of, you know, what we know about universality and sort of the, 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 the really low-level foundations of effects like this. I don't know if you guys saw the recent cat meme that's been circling around on Twitter, um, but a cat is looking at a picture very much like this one oh, yeah, and yeah. starts pouncing on it. It's yeah. the exact same visual, um, the, the exact same visual effect is happening in that cat meme as the one that we are looking at today, and cats, of course, are not humans, but their visual system... <laughs> I beg to differ. That's, this is why I'm an expert. Um, <laughs> their visual systems are very similar to ours. So uh, if you this with just one eye, it's not moving. Um, yeah, it works for one eye with me. Please contact her lab. You yeah. Would be, uh, uh, yeah, this would be good for it further study. It should work with one eye. Okay, so I'm going to ask a philosophical question here. Okay. And I'm expecting you to solve something that we've been uh, wrestling with for... 2,000 plus years. Okay. So we've solved it here tonight and we can move on. Um, if this isn't, like, when we think about, for instance, the checker shadow illusion, that's what, the truth of that image is not what I'm experiencing. But everyone who sees it experiences the same not truth. So what's the truth? Is it, if I don't see what's really there, and, I, and we, we all see the same illusion together, I mean, what does that say about what is and is not true about the things that are going in our um, sensory modalities and then manifesting as subjective reality. Yeah, so um, I think I'll rely on probably one of the many philosophers who have thought about this kind of question. It's my favorite explanation or way to address this question is probably through the lens of Edmund Husserl, who was an early 20th century philosopher. And the way he thinks about a problem like this one um, is through the perspective of what he calls cognitive empathy, or what one could call cognitive empathy if they're kind of analyzing his perspective. And the idea is that we can all acknowledge, and we've acknowledged for a long time, that when we look out into the world, there is some variability in the way that we perceive you know, what's real in our perceptions. But we're, we don't need to disagree about there being many worlds, or disagree that the, you know, our perceptions lead to the, to the eventuality of there being 
being many worlds. We can agree that there is one world and that we all have kind of equal access to that world, even if our perceptions are slightly different from one another. And the idea is that we're generous in this attribution of there being other minds out there that are seeing the world approximately, or at least have access to the world in the way that we do. Um, and the idea is, is, is called cognitive empathy. And, um, cognitive empathy, Cognitive like empathy, this. and actually it might extend to some of the, the things that we're gonna talk about later. But the idea is that you're sort of generous in suggesting that others out there have this access to the, to the world. And you agree that um, this access, you know, having kind of different, reporting different things about what you're seeing doesn't lead to there being, you know, many different worlds or doesn't mean that there's a possibility that there are many different worlds. Rather, you also agree that there is one world out there that you're all perceiving. So is, is this a case of um, there is an objective reality, I think, and we all, like, there's a thing, uh, the term called the Umwelt, which is one of my favorite words, the idea that different if you have the ability to sense infrared or ultraviolet, you get a different subjective reality than I get, but you're still able to navigate whatever it is that's out there that we're sampling. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from, there, we assume there's something beyond the, the veil of our perceptions that maybe we won't ever be able to perceive the way another creature would perceive, right? Is that it? Yeah, that there's a world out there and that at least as human beings, we all have a kind of access to it, and when our um, reporting of that access is slightly different, um, it doesn't mean that there are many worlds or different realities out there. We agree that there's one and that um, we can all talk about something that's the same. Well, this is the thing we're going to talk about. This is what I want to talk about all of you about, is that uh, if there is an objective reality, we have different subjective realities, and we start to disagree on what those subjective realities are. We'll get to it. Because um, we do disagree on the Annie Laurel. We do disagree on the dress. Um, so it's not you know, it, it, you, we can come to a place where we do disagree on what's happening on, sure. after it passes the level of just going from uh, electromagnetic waves into the chemicals in our retina. So, so I'll stop you there. Okay. 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 So, please do. Um, please do. <laughs> this is fun. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so I think that that's, that's where it's important to point out that the dress and Yanni and Laurel are things that are nevertheless still in this kind of perceptual realm. So we make different judgments at the end, right? There are categorical judgments that sound different across individuals. But all of these effects are happening at these basic levels of visual or auditory processing, things, again, that are phylogenetically ancient and are emerging early in human development and the development of other animal species. They're not at the level of do I, you know, do I have some sort of, um, some sort of unique experience or culture that leads me to, to report in one way or the other. Mm. It's really this chemical stuff that's, that's happening very early that is perpetuating and leading to what seems like this grossly different judgment or inference, but it, it's the effect is happening at those very early levels of uh, perception. Okay. Well, I have one other question before we move on to other crazy stuff, and that is, um, well, no, no I, I want to ask this. Um, if a musician uh, listens to a song, yeah. and a person who's never played a musical instrument listens to a song, um, do they hear the same song? I mean, in a way, one person has got to be having a richer experience than the other. At, at what level is that happening? I mean, yeah. I mean, they're both hearing it at the same level. I hear what you're saying, that at the pure sensory experience, they're having the same experience. But at some level above that, in the way I'm thinking of it, something else is happening in two different brains. 
Absolutely. I mean, it has to be the case that a professional mathematician, or sorry, mathematician, um, a musician is doing something different from, or, or having some different experience from uh, a novice. But it really matters what you mean by here, right? So is their sensory, sort of their sensory system doing something different or the same? I mean, uh, you know, at what level of analysis? Are there neuronal differences in the way things are firing? Or is it just that I can report more fine-grained distinctions because I know the names of the notes that are being played? And so, I can use that, uh, that the name of a note to remember it, to label it, to keep those, those uh, labels in an ordered kind of list so that I can reproduce it. Um, there are uh, all sorts of neural effects that happen with professional musicians, like, for example, a violinist will have a larger swath of their sensory motor cortex that's, you know, dedicated to representation of the fingers. Um, there is neuronal plasticity for things like that. But there are also lots of kind of behavioral level effects that, um, that, uh, that come with being able to learn, again, like what the names are of the different sounds that you're hearing, and then once you have the names, you can hold them better in memory, you can label them better. So it really matters what you mean. Do they hear it differently? Well, what kind of hearing differently? What is, what is the level of the effect that you're looking for? And then we can talk about what the differences or similarities might be. Okay, I like that we're getting into categorical stuff because um, my next question is something you can help me out with is that I have heard forever this idea that people in um, like the Greeks or in medieval times did not um, see the color blue because they didn't use the word blue in their literature and, we, and maybe that's because they couldn't see it and they saw something else that what we saw. Do you know of someone who could help us out with that? I do know of someone who can help us out with that. Um, my partner, Brian Riley, is, a, <laughs> is the resident humanist uh, in my family. The man and with the bow tie. Uh, Brian Riley, please join us on stage. What do you study? Do I have to turn this on? Or? I think they're going to turn it on for you. All right. Um, well, I study French literature, particularly of the Middle Ages, and also... What does that have to do with color? What does it have to do with color? Well, in, uh, in the language in which it was written, Old <laughs> French, there is a very curious color term that becomes the modern color term for blue in French. But in Old French, the word bloy could mean white, black, yellow, blue, or, according to one dictionary, the general idea of dazzling. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I had no idea you were going to be here today, but I just so happened to have this image that I was playing around with. This is a photograph of a stained glass window in a cathedral, which features light blue in the middle and darker blue glass on the edges. Uh, and um, I would like you to tell me what I'm looking at here. How does that relate to your work? So on the left, you're seeing the full panel of a stained glass window at Chartres Cathedral. Uh, the title of the panel is Notre Dame de la Belle Verrière, Our Lady of the Beautiful Window, and it is quite beautiful. Um, the central panel is the Virgin Mary holding Jesus, and that dates from the 12th century. And I think we can all agree that the blues in that uh, central panel are much lighter than the blues of the surrounding panels, which were replaced in the 13th century after Chartres underwent a fire. Uh, and uh, you have sort of a, a blown up example of that. And we have a light blue on the left and a dark blue on the right. I um, also just happen to have this one. Um, and you were just mentioned this. You're, you're, if you could say what you said again so I can make more sense of it in my own brain. You're saying that they used a word 
Bloy, and it's less, honestly, honestly, I wanted you to come so I could say that over and over. Bloy, um, what does bloy mean? So uh, that's the question. If you open up a dictionary of old French uh, and look up bloy, uh, you find that here it means blue, there it means yellow. It can mean uh, blonde hair, for example. Over there, it might mean black. Um, and so the dictionaries give you an idea that bloy is polysemous or polysemous. Uh, that is to say that it has different meanings, but individual colors here or there. Uh, and I think that's wrong. I think that bloy in Old French, although it comes to mean the modern color term blue, actually has a chromatic range that might just cover many of these different colors, as strange as that sounds to our ears. So what you're looking at here is a, um, uh, an example in a manuscript of uh, one of the Arthurian tales from the 13th century, where Britain gets called bloy. And so what does that mean? We have different translations. Does it mean blue Britain? Does it mean fair Britain? Or my favorite translation is that it means hairy Britain. I like hairy Britain. Hairy, hairy Britain. When someone, if someone who, if I use the word bloy, would there be people who, when people use the word bloy in the same community, they all would all agree on what that word means? Uh, just as we would agree on what red means. Uh, which is not to say that red can't have a chromatic range as well. Mm. So if you were telling me that you just saw a red dress yesterday, I might think, okay, that was a crimson dress, but you might have met a scarlet dress or a tomato red dress or a cherry dress. So there's a different range of reds covered by that <laughs> I have single... this problem. I, I, I'm like, that's red. Yeah. And I know salmon. I'm like, oh, it's red. Yeah, red's red. And like uh, salmon versus fire, whatever. I've... Salmon's orange. <laughs> See? So, so, uh, there it is. Uh, Bloy, I'm wrong. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about the, um, the Kalina people and what's going on with these two images. So up at the top, you have uh, a range of color chips that would be um, mixed together uh, in an experiment. And you would ask people who spoke Kalina or people who spoke English or people who spoke French to name each of the, the color chips that they were shown out of order. And then at the bottom, you're able to put those together and say, well, they use this one term, which I'm not going to dare pronounce, uh, that seems to mean something like yellow, but if you'll notice, it also uh, covers colors that we would have to describe as blue. So the bottom and the top are the same color space. The difference is that the bottom is how the speakers of Kalina name that space. They name that space only using four different color terms. These people only have four color terms total? Total, yes. So perceptually, though, they do see the entire range of colors. So that would be the claim, is that the perceptually no different. They see the top just like we see the top. And then but the Categorically, they have a different language for, than we have from... Yes, in terms of how they describe the world. And you see here one of the difficulties, because if I were just to give you the bottom picture, you might say that, oh, they see blue as yellow or black. Whereas the correct interpretation here is that they name the color chip at, say, C29 uh, as yellow, whereas we would name it as blue. Do we have any idea why this culture does this this way and why we don't do it that way? Well, in the uh, late 60s, there was uh, a study by Brent Berlin and Paul Kay that uh, described uh, what were known as basic color terms. And it turns out that languages 
uh, uh, add color terms systematically following an evolutionary sequence. The sequence has been updated since then, but the idea remains that if a, uh, a language has three color terms, it will be for white, black, and red. You'll never find a, color, uh, a language that has white, black, and blue, and only blue. Hmm. And it turns out that blue is the sixth basic color term that gets added to a language, so after yellow or green. Why? Why is that? <laughs> well, the suggestion from Berlin and Kay, and I think this relates directly to the medieval example, the suggestion from Berlin and Kay is that it's technology that drives it. If you don't need to name color, then you don't name color differently. It is only when you have different tokens of a particular type that vary only by color, say plastic cups, the solo cups. If you have red solo cups or blue solo cups, well then you're going to have to distinguish them by color because otherwise they look the same. So we if you invent, don't need We to, invent color words when we need to have a color word. Yes. And so bloy becomes blue in Old French right at the moment when both in stained glass and in clothing, you have the ability to really get a true fast blue. Is that what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> tell us what's happening here. So this is the amazing transformation of a garment that's currently in a vat of woad solution and it's going to be oxidized in the air, and you'll see it transform from yellow to blue right before our eyes. Woad is the European equivalent of indigo. It's the same molecule. What would happen if I showed a person from that culture the dress? Well, if you were able to go back to the 12th century, first of all, invite me, because I'd like to go as well, mm -hmm. but if you were to show them the dress, and uh, you could very well have somebody who saw it as blue and black to say it, the dress is bloy. And if you had somebody who saw it as uh, white and gold, the person could say the dress is bloy. We might not acknowledge <laughs> the difference because the language terms would be the same. And if those two people met and I was like, what do you see? They're like, it's bloy. And the other person's like, what about you, bloy? Would they not argue? They'd be like, oh, cool, we see bloy. Yeah, there would be much less argument. So very often we see the addition of color terms in a language as being an advance, but also, you mentioned the ancient Greeks. You lose some poetry when you have to distinguish colors, or in this case, you lose some agreement. My mind is so thoroughly blown right now. Uh, I, so thoroughly bloyed right now. I, I just want to say it one more time because I don't know when I'll get a chance to do this in front of a group of people again. Bloy, it's so good. This all leads to, uh, to the next thing I want to talk about, which is, uh, and thank you so much, that's crazy, the idea, the idea that. Uh, you can stay with us if you want to. Um, the, uh, or you can run away, uh, whatever you feel like you want to do. Um, expectations seem to, uh, the fact that we, these categories add to our subjective experiences uh, leads to some really strange things that I want to talk about. And I think we've talked about um, the dress so much that it's probably time that we understand actually what's going on with this thing. So uh, let's move on, everyone. This is Pascal Wallace. Everyone, please give a round of applause for Pascal. Pascal, what do you do? Yeah, um, in a nutshell, is this on? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, briefly, uh, I would like to conceptualize what we do as studying uh, what was introduced as cognitive empathy empirically and its limits empirically. That's basically what we do. So we, while we acknowledge that there is an objective world out there, um, how does your subjective reality come about? Let me give you a brief example of this. You all heard of the uh, story of the tree falling in the forest, right? Hmm? So what's really going on there is the tree falling. 
uh, creates a sound pressure wave. Basically, the, the falling tree excites the air molecules and pushes them around, and it creates a broadband um, disturbance in the air molecules, and that, that propagates as a wave. What sound is heard depends on the observer. An elephant who's present might hear a very low uh, tone because they have a very low hearing range. The big ears allow them to hear very low frequencies. A bat, which is mostly engaged in um, you know, biological warfare with little insects, has a very high hearing range. So the, the bat might <laughs> say it's a very high-pitched tone. If, and if uh, these bats and elephants could talk, they might well disagree what they heard. And we studied that in our lab empirically with, with music. So we actually do study that empirically. Like, what does a musician hear when they hear a musical piece? Uh, and do they agree with each other and with people who are not musicians uh, and things like that? Movies, the dress. So the dress was fitting right. Yes, the that. dress. Okay, listen, here's the thing. Pascal actually was like, I want to understand how Correct. this is happening, what is happening. So you, do you want to know? You engage. So please, for the love of yeah. God... Right. Solve this thing that broke the earth in half. All right. Um, why do some people see this one way and some people see right. the other? So the reason this really startled people is because all these visual illusions that we looked at so far are consensual. They're all shifting us in the same direction. We all saw the shades of gray as not the same. We all saw the strawberries as red. We all saw what else we see. We saw the Merleau-Lyer illusions as you know shifted and all that. We all and the motion, except for the people with the one eye. That was probably eye movements, by the way. The eye movements refresh the image, the, the emotion. So when, when you uh, covered one eye, you probably held the other eye still. So that's, that created confidence. But anyway, the point is those are all consensual. Do also contact Pascal. If you will, illusions. The point is that the reason this startled people is because it was the first one that I'm aware of that really created two different camps. There was a differential illusion. And um, the second one is it wasn't subtle. It's a profound categorical difference. It was not like, oh, scarlet red versus different red, no, it was like black and blue versus white and gold. As a matter of fact, yeah. I remember a student brings to my attention, they tweeted at me, they were like, hey, check out this, this, this dress. And I was like, well, it's obviously white and gold. We have seen this before, it's color constancy, these are very subtle effects. I went home and, my, and I said, hey, look at a student tweeted at me, showed me my wife, and she's like, what are you talking about, it's black and blue. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, we're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> and um, immediately uh, decided to study that. Like, why is it? Uh, so anyway, so, so those are the two reasons. It really caught people's... It was like if you threw a life grenade into the color vision community, who had been a little bit staid before that, it really excited everyone's imagination. But anyway, yeah. so, so what, what's going on is this. Um, let me walk you through this. So basically, in a nutshell, the same thing is going on as in the strawberries. It's basically color constancy mechanisms. Basically, all the time, you're recalibrating what you see. Let me take a step back. Sure. You're exactly right. What you're seeing is the end result of about a 30-step visual process in Cascade. So it's a perception of a perception of a perception. We're like moving up through Think categories. of the game of telephone. Okay, game of telephone. Your neurons, are playing, your neurons are playing a game of telephone, and, the, and, the, and you are only informed. You, who, whatever you are, is only informed of the end result of that process in Cascade. Okay. And the bottom line is that two different people might do this processing differently. But let me walk you through why. Um, let me see where we start with that. The fundamental problem is that often the brain or the mind I solves don't. inverse problems. Let me talk to you what I mean by, by that. Uh, you have only access, and it's going to be a little bit creepy, a little bit claustrophobic, to your own activity. Your brain has only access to its own activity levels. It's dark in the brain. You have to make sense of what's out there. Mm -hmm. So the particularly inverse problem that you have to solve here, and that was weaponized in the strawberry example, is that... The, no, I'm serious. <laughs> weaponized the, strawberry example. The, um, 
only thing you have is the wavelengths that reach your retina. Yeah. You don't know if that was created from the, from the illumination or if it's created from the object. Does yeah. that make sense? So let me talk about inverse problems in general. Inverse problems are usually resolved by making assumptions. Let me ask you this. Let's say I tell you the result was seven, and I tell you two numbers went into that. Can you tell me what the two numbers were? Uh, five and two. Are you sure? No. It could have been four and three, right? It could have been. Could have been one and six. I did not know there was going to be math. Could have been seven and zero. <laughs> My point is, once you make an assumption what one of the numbers is, you can solve it. What if I tell you one of the numbers was three? What was the other number? Um, four. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I'm so scared I'm going to get this wrong. No, let me, let me, let me, let me. <laughs> Usually, like here, uh, the illumination is not in question. Yeah. But in the, the dress image, the illumination isn't. What is the illumination? Is, is this in sunlight or is this artificial light? I don't know. I so, have to make okay. an assumption. So here's what happened. They took an actually black and blue dress and photographed it in a shop in England on a rainy, gray winter day in February 2016 to prepare for a Scottish wedding on a Galaxy Samsung cell phone, and they super <laughs> overexposed it. Doing that, you have this washed out effect, so you are unclear what the uh, illumination is. I actually don't have a laser pointer, but if you look at the top, this implies sunlight. The bottom, and this is not a great rendering, no offense, the bottom um, <laughs> implies artificial light, incandescent long wavelength light. So in other words, you do not know what the illumination was. So uh, it's ambiguous. It could it's be, ambiguous, it could be I mean, in sunlight or it could be an artificial could light. Could be sunlight, could be artificial light. And so hear me out. Can you think of a reason why some people might assume it's sunlight and others it's more artificial light, incandescent light? Um, I would guess that's what they're used to. That's what they yes, work in. Yes, most people assume what they've used to. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but kids conceptual development of, of uh, animals is like whatever they saw first. If they see dogs, they think all animals are dogs. My prediction is that if you were, there was a unicorn here, you would not recognize it. You would think it's a horse with a particularly disfiguring facial tumor, right? Because you've only seen horses. Yeah. If, you, if there's geniuses here, you would think it's just crazy people because that's what you're used to. Well, you would, you would apply the term liberally to things exactly. that have generally the yeah, same you shape. Accommodate, yes. Yeah. So the point is, in other words, people, and this is like an old, old idea, people assume what they've seen more of. Now, can you think of a condition where someone might be exposed to more sunlight than other people? I assume they work outside. Uh, okay, but we're all living in New York and so the Dressel Society, so that's probably e e equal. Any other time they could do it? I don't mean, I What else could you ask that, that would create a variability in uh, amount of sunlight you get in the population? I have no idea you've stumped me. Yeah, so I was lucky because my first research was like sleep research, so I was aware that people have a chronotype. Oh, a people that are day, day people. Some people, people get up in the morning and some people get up, you know, late, uh, like noon. Would you admit it's uh, possible that people get up at, at uh, dawn? Oh, yes, uh, I'm quite, I will sunlight, admit that quite readily, yes. <laughs> get more sunlight and people get up at, at night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything else being equal? Yeah, sure. Okay, and so that's what we looked at. I'm so scared you're going to... And like, what we found... Going, if, gonna, you're no, going no, to destroy my mind. What we found is that um, looking at large numbers of people, and I'll tell you in a moment why it matters, everything else being equal, people who uh, see more sunlight, some morning purse people, uh -huh. larks, are more likely to see the dresses white and gold. Let me tell you why. Larks. Larks. Morning people are larks. What's the color of the sky? What's the color of the sky? Yeah. Bloy. 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 <laughs> Let's go back to... Um, it's, it's, it's bluish. Kindergarten color science. What happens if you subtract blue from gray? What happens when you subtract blue from gray? Third grade color science. White. No. Bloy. No. <laughs> no, no, bloy. 
Yellow. Yellow. Let's, just, let's say you were like me, like a night owl. You get up at like, I don't know, noon, and stay yeah. up until 4 a.m., have an incandescent light. So you're going to assume a yellow light. What happens if you subtract yellow light from gray? We're going to get blue. 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 So you're telling me that the morning, people who, who are morning people, what do you call the night people, by the way? Night owls? Night owls. Larks, larks and night owls, unbeknownst to them, Yes. In certain ambiguous situations, yes. we'll see two different realities. Correct. And okay. let, me, let me tell you why, that, why, why it matters to have large numbers, though. I said everything else being equal, yeah. but everything else will not be equal. Some people might be legitimately like night people, but the system forces them to wake up in the morning and go to mm. teach students or something like that. Or you might be a night owl, but you might have an LED light, and then you don't have an incandescent light, and then you're not going to get effect. So uh, according to my calculations, you need 5,000 people to show the effect reliably. But we, did, we had 13,000 people, so we were able to show it reliably. Mm. It's a dose-dependent fashion. The more, the more of a morning person you are, the more likely you are to see it as, uh, as, mm. white, uh, as uh, white and gold. And the more uh, of an evening person you are, the more you see it as uh, black and blue. So that's, uh, we had a, a division here in the crowd. So some, uh, I'm now, assuming that morning people... Let me, let me add to this. Yeah, what's going on? It's, it's light in general. Um, so, for instance, if, my prediction, if you saw it, who here saw it in, in a shadow, the light in a shadow? Who saw the light in a shadow? Who saw the dress in a shadow? My prediction is if you saw it in a shadow, you were very likely to see it as white and gold. Is that correct? Exactly. Wonderful. That was a very <laughs> strong effect. We didn't need a couple thousand people to show that. We need a couple people. Let me tell you why. Yeah. What's the color of a shadow, David? It, it's the lack of color, right? What? No. If you had a photometer, <laughs> if, a, if a photometer, uh, it would be measured as blue. Now, what happens again if you subtract uh, blue from gray? White, white and gold, yeah. So it's all consistent. The only, the only thing is with the shadows, I can't predict why you would assume it's in a shadow. Maybe a bad childhood. I don't know. But with the, but with the uh, chronotype, uh, we, could, we could show that. Anyway, so to make this long story short, we can explain on large groups who sees what. So uh, what I love from this is that it's our experience. Oh, yes, please. A round of applause, please. And... and what matters, by the way, what matters my here is for my like, just something very scary here. Your life choices do determine what you see. Your subjective reality. That's what I was about to say. It's amazing to me that your experiences as a human being, determine some what of you which you've next. chosen, yeah. are changing your, the very How subjective reality that? that's coming out the end of this uh, so, pipeline. Yeah, what's, the, what's the poem? Like, you're the captain of your mind, you're the steer of your brain or something like that. That. Every time you do something, you determine your brain... Mara talked about plasticity. Every time you do something, there's experience-dependent plasticity. Every time you do something, you change your mind. As a matter of fact, we're doing microsurgery in your brain right now, right? We're doing. You will never be the same. Uh, this is. I. I truly believe that. Yeah, it's very uh, scary. <laughs> I. Uh, I want to. Um... Now, yeah. Well, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, now there's a whole... You just were so thrilled by this. I am. Yeah, you don't know how scared you've made me. I'm terrified. Why? Um, because I. Scared what you're going to do to me. What are you um, about? The before we get into this, uh, this is easy. What uh, <laughs> um, what color is the shoe, everybody? How many people here see it pink? How many people don't see pink? What do you see? And gray and green. Turquoise. Turquoise. All right. So so this is actually very simple. So this is what we call a retroviral phenomenon. So this. Um, it's very weird, actually, because so after the shoe, after the, we now have a whole wardrobe of these things. We have a slipper, we have an Adidas jacket, we have a shoe, we have a dresser. So 
this came this came up in 2017 and it just reheated. It became retroviral in like just now, like a week ago, two weeks ago. And this is even more on the nose. The question is, do you see what the shoe actually is in reality or what it appears to be? Let me walk you through this. This is now <laughs> this this was now created by design. We can now engineer these things because uh -huh. we understand color constants. So here's what happened. In this case, they took a white and pink sneaker and expose it on a black background. It's important to take away all your other cues to do this color calibration. If, otherwise, you would use that to calibrate the, the light. And then it illuminated this white, white and pink shoe with green light. And then it appears to be gray and green, but it actually is white and pink. So what do you see? What, how it's actually in reality or what it appears to be? And the answer to that is that depends how strong your prior belief that shoelaces are white are. Because if you have a strong prior belief that shoelaces are white, you'll, you'll, you'll use that to disambiguate it. The, the, shoe, the object calibrates itself, if that makes sense. This is the greatest segue, because we're about to get into belief with Jay. And, yeah, but, we'll talk but, about belief in a moment. But the fact that beliefs, <laughs> the idea that beliefs can affect uh, my perception this way is, is no, no, no. When I was a kid, shoelaces were white, period. Yeah, yeah. Now we have these Generation C and Millennials, shoelaces could be any color. <laughs> uh, they, might, they might eat the shoelaces, right? Pastel colors. Um, but it could be like pink. I mean, so, so, so it's probably related to that. Like how much, how, like what kind of shoelaces you have seen? And, and when I was a kid, they were white. So the, your experiences growing up uh, affect whether or not you're, you're Yeah, we don't them. actually know how long these pairs last if we're working on it. Wow, those damn kids. Um, uh, can you explain this to us? Yes, of course. Well, let me do this one more time. <laughs> Laurel. This is easy. Laurel. Laurel. So. Laurel. Okay, so I'll stop it. So one thing that's interesting. We'll, get, we'll explain this next image in a second. Yanni and Laurel, what's going on there? Yeah, same, same thing, uh, but auditory. Uh, so what we found is, and we're going to have a paper about it coming out this summer, uh, it depends on your prior experience. If your name is something like Yanni, like Yan, you will hear it as Yanni. If your name is something like Laura, you'll hear Laurel. Your own voice, lower frequencies. So basically, so let me just be clear about the difference in the, I don't have the spectrogram here. But basically, the Laurel is very low frequency, and the Yanni is very high frequency. It's, it, it, it's an ambiguous sound, like the a, image. Okay, what ambiguous. really happened is they hired, dictionary.com, right? Hired the unemployed cast of cats uh, to voice 500,000 or 600,000 um, words. And um, they were voice trained actors. They're, they're IPA trained actors. They, they, they know how to sound things out. And each actor had to do a couple thousand of them. And the point is, so what happened was they did it on laptops uh, in their New York apartments. So in this one word, a truck went by and bro broke, braked just at the time when they were voicing it. So the second form and frequency was was missing, so it's ambiguous. Yeah, so, okay. so some people hear it as high frequency and some people as a low frequency, and that depends if you have heard more low frequency or high frequency. For instance, if you're male and you have, your own voice is lower, like that, then you are uh, more likely to hear as Laurel. Laurel is very like fully American, trustworthy, uh, you know. It's very like, <laughs> whereas y Yanny is very like, if you hear Yanny after hear Laurel, it was there all the time, it freaks you out, it's like Yanny, Yanny. It's like very like creepy sounding, and I actually data have to pack back up that people think it sounds creepy. You would not buy a car from Yanny, you would buy a car from Laurel. The point is that um, <laughs> if, you have, if your own voice is high pitched, you hear it as uh, Yanny. Also, if you were to like 
low frequency rock music, you're more highly hear, more likely to hear it as uh, laurel. So basically, that's the bottom line. Like these uh, choices that you make, you listen to like certain kind of sounds have long-lasting, uh, unexpected, unintended consequences. I would say. Well, uh, what what's fascinating here to me, like uh, like big picture of all this is yes, that big picture, big philosophy. Big, very this big philosophy picture. is, is you know, we're getting into another philosophical idea. Here, is that you? Obviously, our life experiences are going to give us different sub, like reality perspectives Correct. at the level of experiencing reality, like the level that that the tangible what yes. I'm looking at, what I'm hearing. Yes. So, so, so here is my perspective on this, and this is going to be a great bridge to Jay, who's going to talk about what happens if that breaks down. See, when I was growing up, David, and maybe I'm delusional about this, it was okay to disagree. Disagree was. People agree to disagree. It was fine to disagree. So the whole point about this is your brain will necessarily, because of its upbringing, because of its training, because of its plasticity, have a perspective on the world. But the world is rich. So you're going to have, say, say you're seeing a, a, like a platonic body and you say, oh, it's a circle or it's a square and you disagree. And that's the whole point of society is that if we disagree in goodwill, maybe you can show me a different perspective on the same phenomena and we can together as a society, as a multi-dimensional imaging, figure out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So that's when this works well. What I'm worried about is the rise of toxic disagreement where like the idea is, oh, we disagree, that means you're like a bad person or like you're... Well, there's only one way to see it. I mean, yeah, you're wrong. I know I'm you're right, wrong. right? Yeah, no, I'm I know, right. yes, I'm, am I right or are you wrong, right? Hmm. So, but we are, you because know... Because with the dress and Yanni, yeah, there, yeah, is, yeah. there so, is no right or wrong. So that's the thing, like my concern... There is a right, it's blue and black. It actually I mean, is blue the, and black. Yeah, the, the actual dress is blue yes. and black. But the image, you know what I'm yes. talking about. Like, no, what worries me, David, is if there was a political gain to be made from saying it's one way or the other way, there would be now political parties, like a white and gold party or mm. like a blue party, and, you know, they would hate it. They would, but the, the, the scary thing is there's nothing they can... Is there anything... Okay, if, if you said one way or the other way, is there anything I could have said to walk, talk you out of that? Yeah, it's impossible to, for me to no. see it. I see so it the way I see it. you sincerely see it one way or the other mm. way. Ma, and, and one of the things that our lab is now exploring, who sits over there, is that this applies to higher level things that are not, not just perceptual. Mm. For instance, we looked at music, we looked at mo movies, your subjective reality is surprisingly idiosyncratic. You actually study people's opinions of movies, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what we found, for instance, that the movie critics agree but with each other, but that's not very predictive of what, people, what actual people think about the movies. Oh boy. Um, uh, this is your model, yeah, this is, and I think this is really illustrative. We're I, looking at Pascal's model right now, which has a line, and above it are two columns. They both say experience at the top, then assumption at the bottom, and then as you go below the line, you have these two conclusions. And these conclusions are being drawn in different directions from shared evidence between the two columns. So basically, what you have are two different experiences that lead to two different assumptions, and then when you um, see the same evidence, those assumptions lead to two different conclusions. And people engage each other at the level of those conclusions, not at the level of their experiences and assumptions. I like this a lot. It's a simplified version of what, you know, but yeah. it, this is, if you could tell us what, you've, what yeah, you're in, saying here. In a nutshell, um, once we're down here on the level of conclusions and we disagree what the conclusion is about whatever we're arguing about, I think that's the wrong level of analysis because above the dotted line here, which is basically the level of unconsciousness, there's all these like brain that's behind this. Um, there's a whole like life experience that is differential. Like your life experience is unique to you. I have no idea what happened to you. And you know, so. <laughs> Who that, hurt you? But, but what I'm saying is that's what creates your subjective reality. And that, that will shape your brain. Uh, experience that this pen plus is very real. Yeah. And the point is that these different experiences are shaping our brains differentially. Maybe you're a morning person. Maybe I'm a night person. 
you know. Yeah. Uh, so this level down here of the verbal disagreement, which that's is where we have our discussions on the internet, that's a service. Also, so what what I would argue is we have to get back to a level to a culture of benign disagreement, where like where we acknowledge that their disagreement is you know, inevitable. And we have to figure out why we're disagreeing. At what point do we diverge? Yeah. We're saying, oh, we disagree about the conclusions, and that's why you're a bad person. Yes, in the back with the hat. I think I'm going to disagree with Pascal a little bit. Do okay, go ahead. Um, let's let's so, go. Let's get into it. So yeah, um, if you don't mind my jumping in. No, no, no. Um, so I I think models like these and it's a, it's a model, just to be clear. The models like these, yeah, yeah that yeah. I that. I just pointed to, yeah. and that Pascal just described, and the kinds of experiential effects that he suggests are underlying the dress, and I totally agree with those. I think it's perhaps dangerous to think about um, that, that these kinds of things have pervasive effects on our perception. Mm. So we don't disagree that there's a dress, right? We mm. all see a dress. Mm. We all can see the lighting. We all also can understand that, you know, we're looking at a, a colored object. So there's actually a lot that our visual system and their interpretation of the picture is giving us that's universal mm. that isn't affected by the way that we're brought up or mm. the kinds of life experiences right. that we had. And I think it's important to underlie the, even if there are differences, that there is a lot of common ground. And that is maybe something that can be carried through or should be carried out more in these kinds of higher level uh, analyses we make uh, in everyday life. Um, but in, in terms of sort of how much life experience can give you, say, in your mm -hmm. perception of the dress, well, it's just if it flip you, flips you one way or the other, and we happen to have language that captures both of these interpretations, so it turns into this kind of big deal. But, you know, there's a lot in common that's leading up to, you know, um, the, the, the influence that your experience can have to kind of push your Bayesian inference one way or the other Bayesian at the inference. point that we make that, that yeah. judgment difference. Can I respond to that? Of course. Let's um, get into it. I want to know what you have to say. I disagree that we disagree. Okay. Um, what I think is going on, I think you're exactly right. Like the degree of common ground is critical. Uh, my concern is that in the age of social media, we are, we are losing common ground. Hmm. Basically, social media promised to connect us but it connected us in a tribal Okay, we're going to get into we're that gonna, next I'm not going to steal anything from Jay. <laughs> but, 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 but let me let me briefly tell you what I'm worried about. I agree with Mara that, that common ground is critical. To resolve, to resolve uh, disagreements, we have to find common ground. Yeah. But what I'm worried about, and I'm sincerely worried about this, it's not like, not like oh, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. No, I'm, I'm worried about this. <laughs> uh, on an existential level, is that we are losing common ground. Well, this is what I want to talk about. We, we can talk about it later. When we... Um, when... Uh, at the level of talking about the things that are going on in the invisible uh, chain of you know, the telephone yeah. game, we, we tend to try to explain ourselves to ourselves, and we don't always have access to the sources of what's coming out of that system, and it ends up being sort of a battle of justifications or a battle of explanations or confabulations. Right. And it seems to me that in the model you were showing, this is what's happening at that last level. We're all talking about what yes. we think is why we said what we said. Um, yeah, in a nutshell, yes, this meshes very well with the model. Basically, you don't know why you believe the things you believe. If I talk to you about on the language level, I'm talking on the level of the disagreement, but that's not why you really believe what you believe. And you might not know why you believe. Also, notice with the shadows, even if you know, and you, you mentioned this several times, even if you know that the, that the colors are the same, you cannot override this. Your brain gives you the you know, interpretation, right. and, that's, and that's it. Um, as a matter of fact, there is something I would like to do about the dress. There are some people who switch, about 1% of people see both. They're on the decision boundary. I want to 
find them and uh, <laughs> study them in the lab. And the idea would be if we expose those people on, on the boundary to like blue light or yellow light for like a day maybe or something like that, maybe we can push them into one interpretation yeah. only. But that would, as an experiment, sh like seal the deal of that, you no, know, no, this is like given to you by your brain. You cannot unsee these things. Um, so we all do this. I'm assuming we're always doing this all the time. We're always explaining ourselves to ourselves whether or not we know why we did what we right. did. I mean, um, this is your like podcast, right? I mean, I, <laughs> yes, I, I, it is. No, but I mean, I bet you have the things that you are covering here. I, not as listen, don't listen as much as I should. Uh, are dealing with these rationalizations, like rationalizing your own behavior. Right? Yeah. that's half what social psychology is, right? Like rationalizing what you do somehow. Right. With all these biases. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. Whatever you think the truth is, whatever interpretation you have of reality, you can put that on the internet very easily with this really cool website that you may have heard about called Squarespace. Squarespace's official tagline is, turn your dream into a reality. And I think that you can most easily do that with, well, Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, Squarespace is the tool for you. There are things you can do with this that I have never even thought of. It's something only you have in your head right now. And with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms. And you can use the same thing these millions of people are using to turn great ideas in your head into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash so smart. And the offer code is so smart. If you are listening to this show, then I know that you love learning new things. I know you love challenging the way you think about different ideas, which is why I also know that you would love The Great Courses Plus, and it's why I want you to check it out. The streaming service that I'm talking about right now, The Great Courses Plus, is a great way to discover thought-provoking, unique perspectives from some of the world's leading professors and experts on virtually anything, any topic you can think of. They've got a course on that. Developing Emotional Intelligence, The Future of Human Evolution, The Roman Empire, Mediterranean Cooking, Travel Photography. Come on. They have all of that and so much more. You can watch it on any device from wherever you are with the Great Courses Plus app. And personally, I think you should check out a course that I've enjoyed, and it's just The Psychology of Human Behavior. With this course, you get 36 lectures, about 30 minutes long each, that range from modern psychology in a historical context, emotion, learning, complex learning, memory, therapy, evolutionary psychology, engineering psychology, and more. Take your knowledge to the next level with The Great Courses Plus. Right now, they are giving my listeners a full month of unlimited access 
for free. But to start your free month, you must sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Well, I want to take this up level. We've talked a lot about at the level of perception and how that can be influenced by all sorts of things, uh, our life experiences. Um, I feel like there's a bridge from the dress to everything else, and that's why you're here. Everyone, we're going to now speak with Jay Van Babel. Please give a round of applause. Um, I want to show a little bit of an experiment here, and I want you to explain why this is. This is a fun thing. I had these people on the podcast a couple years back. They did this experiment where they put people in fMRI. Um, they told them, uh, you know, paper bags are better for the environment than plastic bags. They challenged their belief on this. And then they presented them a couple of uh, factoids. They're like, you know, 24% of people reuse the bags, 67% reuse plastic. It takes 91% more energy to recycle a pound of paper than it does a pound of plastic. People tended to go, oh, well, okay, and their belief softened. But if it was on an issue like, uh, gun control, the, and they said the laws regulating gun ownership in the United States should be made more restrictive. Um, you know, they are less restrictive. They would say, they would justify it with most gun crimes are committed with stolen guns, 10 times more people are murdered with kitchen knives each year than they're killed by assault weapons. Um, if they challenge people's beliefs on some issues versus others, instead of the softening on their beliefs, what they said would happen was they would react, and this is exactly what they said to me, uh, they reacted as if they're, they were being attacked by a bear. <laughs> and they said in the imager, they saw what you would expect to see from someone like in a dark alley, and they had a knife, and they were like trying to, to hurt their body, trying to hurt them physically. They were seeing this. Anyway, I asked them in that interview why that would be so. And they're like, we have no idea. They, and they were, they were neuroscientists. They're like, we have this information. We don't know why this issue would make you feel so threatened, and this issue would not, when it's the same kind of idea. I'm just trying to get you to look at these facts and change your beliefs. Um, so why? Good, great question. So in case people didn't catch it, the Harris in that author list was Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. um, this was him actually doing neuroscience instead of running his own podcast. Um, what is happening is that people have ideological and identity-based commitments. And so you can think of like a Venn diagram between yourself and some group that you care about, your political party or some lobby group or uh, sports fan. And for some people, these things are basically completely overlapping. And for those people, um, these, they take these threats to their group or their identity as threats to the self. And so they're reacting as if this is a specific challenge to them and who they are. Um, and what that does is it makes you just like a fanatic at a sports game, all painted and acting a little bit crazy. Um, people are reacting because this is what's called an identity threat. It's a threat to a core part of uh, and, uh, who they are, and it defines their status. Um, it defines their sense of belonging. It defines their moral values. And so all of these things are interwoven with these identities that we have. Yeah, well, the, it seems to me that we can get back to the dress uh, by... <laughs> Um, the way that this was affected by different life experiences, morning people, night people, that sort of thing, I, I was reminded of it when I saw this uh, from one of your examples. <laughs> what we're looking at right now is that image of the inauguration of Trump 
side by side with the inauguration of Barack Obama. And it's clear that in the left-hand image, there are far fewer people than in the right-hand image. There's some weird research uh, into this picture. I think I have it here in the slide. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you remember that they said that that was, no, no, that, that was the largest audience that ever was. Um, and that's how we got this word that popped into the lexicon. Uh, look, that's just an alternative fact, right? Um, but there was actually research done on this. What happened with that research? What's going on here? So after someone online posted these pictures of Barack Obama's uh, initial inauguration crowd and Donald Trump's, um, showing that Barack Obama's was much larger. It led to this defensiveness from the press secretary and the president and Kellyanne Conway. And so political scientists tried to figure out, are people seeing these differently? And so they polled, um, I think it was about 1,300 Americans, and showed them this picture of the two inauguration crowd sizes and asked them, uh, is the crowd on the left larger or the crowd on the right? So we'll do it right now by show of hands. <laughs> How many people think the crowd on the left is larger? Almost one hand almost went up. Um, how many people think the crowd on the right is larger? Okay, so everybody here got it right. It, it, uh, Moira got it right too. Um, I noticed you were sitting on your hands, Pascal. Well, it's hard to tell because it's, I don't want to zoom in. The B one is zoomed in. Okay. Um, my my six-year-old daughter got this right. So, <laughs> so anyways, um, the so what they found is that. 90% of people got this right. But specifically, the only real people who got this wrong weren't Clinton supporters or independents, it was Trump supporters. About 15% of them got this wrong. And so there's a question, why are they getting this wrong? Not a single person in this room got it wrong. And so that's a case, you can see the data there, that almost no one got it wrong except Trump supporters. Um, and so why are they doing this? Why are they saying this? And so there's lots of reasons why this might be. I think in this case, it's not quite like the dress. I'm assuming that they're seeing the crowds. Um, there might be something what's called partisan cheerleading. They're trying to signal their identity by showing that they rally behind this group. And so this gets to Pascal's point about why social media is a bit of a problem, is that people are constantly partisan cheerleading. They're signaling things even if they might not agree that it's true. And that can spawn conflict. It's... Um it's, it's wild to me than that, um, that this is a, would be a point of disagreement. Uh, this would drive me insane, more than the, the dress could ever do, because I'm like, I'm looking at it, but it feels similar in that I can't help but see what I see. They, I'm assuming they could help what they, what they see. They could come around. There would be a way to get to them, maybe, right? You'd hope there would. Uh, so that there's issues here um, that some people might be so committed to their identity that they're impenetrable to facts. And so this is part of the concern. Um, and it, even if you convince them, it might not change their underlying attitude about the, the person or the party that they care about. And so, um, so there's challenges getting people to admit that they're wrong, even if it's in a private context like this, just filling out a survey. Um, certainly it's much worse in public where your co-group members can see you. And so there's even more pressure for you to stay consistent and loyal to the group. Um, and so these things actually probably get amplified in public settings like social media debates about politics. I, I never got I didn't, we're going to get into your, to your research. I would like you, if you could just, what is it that you do? What, what do you uh, research at your lab? So I'm a social neuroscientist and I'm interested in how our brains and our minds uh, figure out issues around identity, uh, morality and politics. And so 
I'm interested right now in looking at things like how our identity shapes how our brain processes information about political discussions, uh, as well as all kinds of other issues related to identity. And so political identity is just one case. But we study this uh, at every level from, you showed a picture of an MRI scanner, so we study it at the, every level from neurons all the way up to large-scale social networks of hundreds of thousands of people uh, debating politics. Um, this is gonna, I mean, I'm going to ask a five-year-old question here, because it's, it's, this is something that's coming up more and more in the research, that identity, is can, and especially group identity, can really affect how we interpret ambiguous information, as we've seen with the Mueller report and all, everything, every single thing that's coming out in the news. So from like a, a expert opinion, what would an expert say, what even is identity? I mean, like I know we throw the word around and lay people, whatever I think it is, what do you see when you think of the term identity? So identity is, is as simple as a flip of a coin. So if I were to uh, go around and flip a coin and put half of this audience into one team and half into another team, um, within minutes, people would start identifying with their group more. They would start showing a preference for them. In fact, research has found they'll even start allocating more money towards members of their in-group over the out-group. And so it starts really simply. And I've done this in classrooms many times. Always I find this effect. Um, and so that's the, the kind of the first step of identity. But then when you're talking about political identity, you take that part of the process and then you layer on top issues around competition. And so everything, identities and groups get amped up when there's competition. And then you layer on things like morality. So the moment you're talking about things like abortion, gun control, um, you're talking about morality, you add in status. Um, groups also provide norms about what's, how to behave. And so that provides clarity about what we think we should do. And so you take all of these things and it's like a recipe and you mix them all together and you end up with American politics. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, uh, and I know this is going to sound really like a really strange question if you've uh, never seen the research in this, but <laughs> I like asking a scientist a question that uh, doesn't seem like a scientist should talk about, but this is something that scientists do study. What are morals? Uh, morals are complex. So morals are determined by us. They're subjective. And so some people might find... Um, the issue of abortion to them is a highly moral issue. Other people might disagree with them but not see it as a moral issue. And it's once it gets moralized that you start to have uh, intractable conflict. Um, and this can be the same with land. So some people might see a, a, a tract of land as sacred. Their ancestors are there. They have some right to it. Other people might see land as a purely economic transaction. But the moment it's sacred and gets moralized, it's taboo to trade it off or sell it. Um, in fact, offering somebody money for sacred land could actually escalate conflict. And so we think of sometimes that's the way to, you know, de-escalate things or resolve conflicts. In some research has found that that can actually make it much worse if people see it as sacred. And so it's kind of layering on that extra ingredient really creates these intractable types of conflicts. Well, there are questions that are, we're having a hard time getting people to agree on the facts on certain issues. Um, that don't seem to be issues that should be moralized, like climate change or uh, you know gun control or um, if it's, is the earth flat? Like these are things <laughs> that seem to be issues of fact. Yet when we try to use facts to get people to see whatever it is we're trying to get them to see, they don't seem to work. How does an issue move from the world of pure you know empirical facts and evidence to this other world that seems to usually be reserved for? ethics and morality and politics and stuff like that. Yeah, so you can moralize anything, and this is partly what politicians do. 
They'll moralize. So sort of some people might see, you know, marginal tax rates as a debate about whether it's going to be optimal for the net GDP growth in a year. Other people are going to see it as about fairness. Hmm. And politicians and leaders, as well as activists, all the time are trying to frame issues through the lens of morality. And once that starts to penetrate your own brain and your own psychology, then you start to see that thing as a moral issue, even if you didn't see it before. And so we can do this also on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. So we have a study where even something like riding a bike, if you're deciding how many people here rode a bike today or took a subway, okay, I took the subway here. Um, for some of us, this is just a pragmatic issue. Will the subway get me fat? They're faster than a, than a taxi. Is it cheaper? Um, for other people, it's actually a, a moral matter. It reduces greenhouse gas emissions, which you brought up, reduces climate change, and we all might see ourselves as a, having a responsibility there. So we ride a bike or take um, a transit. And so for those people, they're going to be irritated when they see other people taking transit or driving an SUV. And so um, whereas the people who just did it pragmatically kind of have, you know, to each their own, everybody has their own way to do this, and it's fine. And so that's a case where even day-to-day -day you can switch back and forth. When you watch the news in the morning, you see something about climate change, you might change how you think you're going to commute to work that day. You might realize, this is a moral issue for me. Um, I'll give you an example. Today I was having lunch. I ordered a latte, and the waitress goes, what kind of milk? And I said, I never used to get asked what type of milk I wanted. And she said, for many people, it, it, it's a moral issue. It, you know, it went from um, regular milk to almond milk, and now there's oat milk. Apparently, oat milk is optimal for the environment. It's also delicious. And it's also okay. So I, <laughs> I was thinking I'd try it. Um, but for them, they won't take the other milk even if they liked it because they think it's, that it's harmful to the environment. So even things like our coffee... Walk in your coffee shop the next time you go tomorrow and look at all the symbols of morality that are advertised by your coffee shop about you know, their relationships with farmers and where the proceeds go. Um, this is interwoven into the most trivial of transactions that we have. Well, uh, you have a paper uh, that you produced that I, I really I love it because it, it has brought together a lot of the things we've talked about tonight into one sort of framework. It's uh, called the partisan brain, an identity-based model of political belief. Um, <laughs> this is a great image that we, when uh, there are some issues for which uh, we will, this is my phrasing, not your phrasing, the idea that we will kind of choose to be wrong if being wrong affords us other things that are more valuable than being right. Yeah. And uh, you actually have been able to turn this into a nice uh, model. Could you explain what we're looking at here? So what we're looking at here is when you read something in the news or see some piece of information on TV, or hear it from a friend, you have to decide how much you're going to value that piece of information, how much it's going to update your priors, to go to Pascal's question. And there's lots that goes into it. And so if the people on the news telling it to you are from a political party or even from a specific news source, the New York Times versus the Wall Street Journal, you're going to place different weight on that information based on how much, those, how much your identities are invested in it. And so the reason we identify with groups is because groups fulfill different goals for us. And if your identity with, for example, a political party is uh, really intense because that party gives you a sense of status, belonging, maybe you live in a neighborhood where all your friends are part of that party or your spouses, um, or it gives you a sense of morality and right and wrong, they're constantly telling you you're on the, you're on the right side of history, 
then that identity is going to be very compelling for you, and you're going to want to find information that supports and validates that identity. Because if not, to go to your point earlier, it's going to create enormous amounts of cognitive dissonance. Mm. If you're in the wrong, if you're supporting a party on the wrong side of history, um, think of that. That sucks. Or if you're going to have to disagree with all your friends at your dinner party on Friday night, it's going to be awkward, um, and you might not get invited again. And so there's all these different goals that are being fulfilled by these identities. Now we also have an identity to be accurate. And this goes to Moira's point, that we can see reality for the most part, and we can figure out truth if we pay enough attention and analyze the data in front of us. Um, but we have all these other things, like a tug of war, pulling us in the opposite direction. Now, um, for us at least, we're, we have the luxury of being scientists. So for us, being accurate increases our status in our group as scientists. In fact, if I post a bunch of fake news, um, if I probably stop getting invited to panels like this. Uh, my friends will be gossiping about me at the next conference around the bar. Um, people, students won't want to work in my lab anymore. And so our, our goal is to be as accurate as possible and if we make a mistake to correct it ourselves as quickly as possible. So our identity and our accuracy goals are aligned. But for most people, most of the time, they don't necessarily have uh, motives that incentivize them to be accurate on mm -hmm. their interactions with friends, at dinner parties, on social media. They have other goals, like being valued and signaling they're a good group member. But I feel like rewarded. I want to be accurate. Like I, I feel like I'm not doing that. I bet most people here feel like, no, I'm trying to be right. What are some examples that I think, I think we oftentimes like pick on the conservative side of things. What are some examples that people on the other side tend to do when they're pursuing these uh, identity goals in, in, uh, at the expense of accuracy goals. Yeah, so there's lots of cases that are either the left is slightly less accurate or aren't ideological at all. And so these are things like uh, a big one is vaccination. You see it in the news, anti-vax attitudes. Um, and these are actually, I, I saw an analysis of this recently, a lot of the, the measles and, and other outbreaks that are happening are in small, isolated, traditional communities where basically what you have going on there is groupthink that they block themselves out from external information. The, there's a high pressure to belong and fit in and go along with the norms of the community. And so paying attention to health information, accurate health information, and doing things that are optimal from a medical perspective is not valued in the community. So that would be another one. Um, other ones are, are, you know, the climate change thing is interesting because that's actually the Republican Party is very anti-climate change, but conservatives in other countries aren't necessarily anti-climate change. And so you don't see that being nearly as ideological if you go to other countries. So th that's just a sample of some of them. Um, but I won't say scientists are perfect. We have the same fallacies and the same brains as other people do. Um, what we do is create incentive structures to be accurate. So when I write a paper, it goes out to three random people who are experts, who I will never find out who they are most of the time, and they critique the hell out of it. Um, and they do that to make it better, and if it doesn't pass muster, it just gets rejected. And so my incentive is to do as good a job as I can so I can get published, so I can get you know, promoted or tenure or a job. Um, and so those things matter way more in our community because we've created institutions and structures and norms around it. You, you've uh, taken this and you know, this explains uh, roughly how, what's going on with the picture there, but um, you've also explored how this is affecting the fact that fake news became a thing. Um, but in, you can see that how quickly fake news went from being something that, that was sort of uh, at the outskirts of what we consumed and then somewhere around election day, it flipped and fake news became something that was much more popular and shared more often on social media than mainstream news. Um, 
I love that you've put this in, you've taken this model to, to describe it. Um, what's, what's going on with the, with the, uh, the mathy math stuff there at the bottom? What, what's, what's happening there? Um, so that's just the value of all the different goals we have. If we have an identity that fills a belong, sense of belonging, um, gives us a sense of knowledge, fulfills our existential needs about we're going to have meaning, uh, fulfills status needs and all these other things, it's going to be more important to us than other identities that don't. And this is why, like, we might be a Yankees fan, but it's not going to be nearly as important as our political party identity for most of us because it doesn't really tell us about our morality. It might give us a status or belonging goal, but not the other ones. And so um, some identities matter a lot. Now, when I was a kid and I went shopping with my grandparents, fake news meant, like, Bat Boy. Um, they'd buy, like, you know, or Elvis was spotted in a 7-Eleven in Memphis or something. Um, that's the magazine they grab as they were, like, paying the bill. For us now, fake news has been weaponized, and the reason it sells, um, that people are willing to share it and pass it on and believe it, is because it's designed um, to appeal specifically to our identities. It's designed viscerally to kind of fly below our analytic radar and hit us in the gut in a way that affirms those certain identities more than others. Um, before I, I open this up to questions and the group and everything, I wanna, there's this really strange study about with, that involves skin cream and gun control, and they switched the numbers around. It was uh, Dan Cahan's group. Could you talk about that study? Because this is one of the weirdest things that's ever come out of this research. <laughs> so, so there's an interesting study. It's a little bit controversial, but um, Dan Cahan, who's a, a researcher at Yale Law School, has did, done these studies where people have to do this problem-solving task. And so he gives them a paragraph, and there's a bunch of numbers, and they have to crunch numbers to figure out the solution. And when it's not framed around people's identity and morality, the people who are good at math solve the problem. Just like when you were a kid in school, you got these problems to solve, and if you're good at math, you tended to do better at them. What happens is the moment you layer on gun control data, kind of like the example you showed earlier, um, people who are good at math suddenly can't, can't dominate the question anymore. If they're really committed to believing that gun control is good and the way that the problem works out has data suggesting gun control is bad, they have a hard time solving it. Or if they think gun control is really bad and they're pro-gun rights and the data in the problem that they're supposed to solve s provides evidence that gun control is actually a good thing, then they struggle to solve it. And so basically it takes away the advantage they initially had by being good at math. And so um, this is a thing that the moment our identities get embedded in things that our normal capacity to solve problems and calculate data, um, it, it gets harder for many people. In fact, most of, when you look at partisan bias, most of it's among what you call high information voters. These are people who are paying a ton of attention. If you are paying a ton of attention and you're either hardcore Republican or hardcore Democrat, it means you're probably like really drilled down into some rabbit hole of certain type of hyper-partisan news. And so you have very strong priors that are built in and it's hard to, to shake you. And you spin news in your own brain in a way that affirms uh, your identity. What, what's amazing about that study is it's, it, it, for some people, the, oh, the, it's the same numbers both ways, but sometimes they're told, some people are told it's, a, it's about skin cream. You're trying to judge whether or not this skin, skin cream works. Yeah. And then the, you get one completely different set of responses when you just basically, basically take it like, I'm not talking about skin cream, I'm talking about gun control. Like they just change it to gun control, but all the numbers stay the same. Yeah. And just by changing what the numbers are supposedly, the conclusion you're supposed to draw is related to this issue, it activates completely. This is, your model here says that this is, uh, identity can affect all sorts of different types of cognition 
in a way that we would not realize is happening. Like, I wouldn't know that was happening to me unless someone explained to me in the debriefing, oh, by the way, you wouldn't have done this if it had been about skin cream. Yeah, that, and, and so this is where partisanship and identity gets really interesting. And it, and it gets away a little bit from the, the crowd size story because some of this might be happening unconsciously. And Molly talked about how unconscious is probably doing boring stuff most of the time. I think it is. Um, but sometimes it's, um, you know, adding up or evaluating pieces of our environment and information and, uh, in ways that can bias us or nudge us to, work, to do one thing or another. And this can pull us away from the truth. And so there is uh, a great study showing that people even have uh, implicit partisanship. So people who say they don't identify with the group, you can give them measures that kind of measure their automatic associations with different parties. And even if they're an independent, they often still have an uh, automatic tendency to prefer one or the other, and that guides how they crunch information. So some of this stuff might be even happening unconsciously. You, it, it can affect our memory? How can it affect our memory? Um, there's a great study by Liz Loftus, who's a very famous uh, false memory researcher, uh, and a colleague of mine, Eric Knowles, and others. And what they found is that they gave people pieces of information and tried to see what they would remember. And Democrats were more likely to remember false, bad information about George Bush. Um, like that he was like having a party during Hurricane Katrina. Um, so you remember that, but it's actually not true. So that false memory can get implanted, and you're more likely to encode it and retrieve it later. Um, uh, the opposite is that uh, Republicans are more likely to remember the false memory about Barack Obama shaking hands with the you know, president of Iran or something like that. And it didn't happen, but you can get, they're more likely to encode and retrieve that. And so if you give people a bunch of false information, they're more likely to embed the false information that is consistent with their identity in their brain. The... Um I want to talk about uh, what we can do about all this because obviously I'm, I don't see myself, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to keep arguing with people on the internet and trying to correct them. Uh, I try to avoid political conversations with my family at least, but I mean, you know, stuff matters and I want, you know, my, at least the way I see things to be valued and when the facts are involved, would be it climate change or the earth being flat or whatever we're talking about, it seems like I would like to get a, reach people despite whatever is happening to them. Um, uh, I want to talk about that, and, and that I, I, I don't know exactly what I want to say at all, uh, but I think I want to ask this one question to the group before we move on into maybe what we can do about this. Are we living in a post-truth era? Is that word worth being word of the year? What do you think? And I'd like to hear everybody's opinion on that. Well, I was going to maybe just take one step back, and maybe I can get to my yeah, point on post-truth, although I, I don't know if I'm going to... Please do, please do. Yeah, We've okay. got a little time left. So, so um, Jay had mentioned, uh, you know, that there are all of these unconscious things that are happening before we can report some sort of sort of percept. And I think um, I didn't mean to isolate those as only low-level and interesting kinds of things. Um, these kinds of heuristics and biases that Jay was talking about um, are complex and um, certainly affect high-level judgments and inferences that we make about the world. But the point that I would make about that is that these kinds of heuristics and biases are also universal to humans. Mm. It's not the case that these are restricted to people who have only had experience living with Republicans or only have experience living with Democrats, right? And, and, and you know, research like, like Jay's is, is showing that these kinds of effects emerge 
in all sorts of different kinds of people from all sorts of different kinds of places. And there's this universality in this very rich, interesting uh, part of our cognition, which leads to these higher level judgments. Yeah, so I'd say a good example of this, to go back to the sports example, is this is why sports fans always hate the refs. It doesn't matter what side they're on, they always think the refs screwed them. And the reason is because both of them are biased in how they see what's going on. The moment there's a third party who's pretty unbiased, people always think that person is slanted against them on average, everything else being equal. Uh, yeah, Lee Ross said, told me that the, uh, the great psychologist Lee Ross, he said that uh, the, the more fair and even-handed the news, the more people think it's biased because each side will have an ax to grind with it. Yeah, and, and when I talk about identity, this, matters, this applies to all kinds of identities. And so look around the world, look at yeah. intractable conflicts. Look, look in um, the Middle East at the intractable conflicts. These are hard things where people are, have a different sense of what happened, a different perception of reality, different news sources, they're paying attention to different things. Um, the same thing is, as I said, happening in sports. It's happening over all kinds of debates, everything from the dress to, to the politics here, but in many other countries with many issues um, around all different types of identities. So it's easy for us, I'm a Canadian, so I feel like an anthropologist watching American <laughs> politics. Um, but but it's, so it's fascinating to me, but, but this is part of human nature. I think that's a great point that Myra makes. Uh, that part of human nature that it stems from is that humans evolved in small groups. Mm -hmm. And so we have a brain that uh, survived over evolutionary history because the ancestors who survived were good at cooperating and coordinating with groups, building a sense of shared reality, working together, because if they got excluded from the group, they were surely gonna die. And so this is critical for our uh, ancestors' capacity to survive. So that's what we all have now. Right. Yeah. Can I jump in? Can yeah. I jump in there? Yeah, I agree with you uh, completely. Um, first of all, yes, I mean, the people are very ready to uh, use anything to, uh, for these identity goals. So for instance, I thought the dress is very innocent, but I was wrong. There is now a blog. I'm not sure if it's ironic, but I don't think so. It's like the white and gold people blog. And their, and, and their argument is that there are these basic black and blue people, and they just see things how they are, but the white and gold people, they have access to the astral plane, and they see with the chakras, they see they're much better people. So they have status goals. They're, they're like, they see white and gold, and so they are better people than the, black, the basic black and blue people. So people use anything to, uh, you know, pursue identity goals, I guess. Yeah. So do we, I mean, do we, do we live in a post-truth era? I mean, yeah. uh, is, <laughs> what's going on? I mean, does it, or should we all be yeah. freaked out? What's going on? So. Okay. So um, my You would go through everybody, yeah. I would probably take it back to the sort of the initial point that I was hoping to convey about cognitive empathy, which is that um, maybe we do, I guess, but we needn't, right? If we can acknowledge universalities in the way that our biases are formed, maybe I sound like a real optimist right now, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, if we can kind of... Uh, understand and acknowledge universalities that are uh, evident in our cognition and our interaction with the world, um, then maybe that's a foundation off of which we might be able to build. So this very kind of generous um, Husserlian view that we just need some empathy at a cognitive level um, for one another. And I think actually um, this is something that plays out not only in everyday sort of interactions with other people, in the sciences, in the humanities, and maybe Brian wants to speak to that. But it's really something that, that we can think about applying to our, to our activity in a broad sense. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I would add on that. So I do think we're living in a post-truth era because there is a marketplace for post-truth information. I think 
in a way that is unprecedented in history. So when you look at fake news purveyors, one of the big ones was Empire News. They were producing fake news about Democrats and Republicans. It was lies about both parties. And people were making six-figure salaries living in Macedonia producing these things. And so we now have an economy, an attention economy, where these are incentivized and rewarded. And so I think, and, and social media, I think Pascal is exactly right, weaponize, allows us to weaponize these things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do think we're living in a post-truth era. Um, but I agree with Molly, I tend, I'm usually the optimist in the room. Um, and so I think there's optimism at two levels. One, I think, is the level of uh, psychological explanation, which is, um, you know, for example, when you tell me about the explanation behind the time of day and the dress, mm -hmm. I start to develop an understanding of what's going on in someone's mind who disagrees with me right. in a way that really enlightens me. And so you can imagine that playing out with all kinds of issues. Like, what are your priors? I had no idea those were your priors or anybody could have those. Um, the next level, as I mentioned with science, is you can build institutions that value and prioritize mm -hmm. truth and bake in fact-checking and create norms for accuracy. And then the third way, and this is where I'm super optimistic, also super pessimistic if we don't get this right, is the reason fake news, I think we're living in a post-truth era, is also the reason we can solve it, which is that social media companies have created a scalability mm -hmm. for the weaponizing of fake news and, and misinformation. At the same time, we live at the very first moment where we can change an algorithm and within minutes, two billion people's news mm -hmm. feed can be affected. And so if Facebook or Twitter or these uh, Instagram decided and I know some of them are trying, um, and got it right, how to change their algorithms. They could fix this um, in a way that, in history, we were talking backstage before, uh, David was saying, there's these companies that go around canvassing and knocking on doors, and over the last decade, they become experts, and they can change like 12% of people's minds on issues um, because they're absolute experts and they're masters of persuasion. And they go to door to door, knock on one door at a time, and have an hour long, half an hour long conversation. And one out of 10 doors, they can change someone's mind. Now, that is painstaking, it's expensive. You can't scale that. Mm -hmm. We can't scale conversations at Thanksgiving dinner. What we can scale is the way that information is disseminated by media and social media. And, so, and we have a, a way to do that that it has a scale that's unprecedented in human history. So that's why I think I'm super optimistic. If we get that right, we can maybe unwind this a little bit. But it's also scary, because if we don't get it right, <clears throat> The, the, the scale problem is just as bad on the other side. Mm. Yeah. So I agree with you that I think we're at a pivotal time. I think we're at the crossroads. And I really do blame social media. And I'll, I'll tell you why. But to um, add to what both of you are saying, so I agree with Moira, this is like largely an imperial question. So for instance, in our movie research, we could show people agree that they saw an action movie. What they disagree with is that what, how good it was, if it makes sense. So they agree that what they saw, just not how good it was. For Jay's point, uh, yeah, I think we are, our brain is not built for Twitter. It's built for small social groups under 150 people. And let me make an analogy why this is a dangerous time. Um, the last time this happened was 500 years ago. Uh, let, me, let me give you some context. So for 1,000 years, the Catholic Church had a monopoly on interpreting the Word of God. Okay? Then Martin Luther, uh, with the printing press, had the, had the bright idea he's going to translate the Bible into German, which was the vernacular. And, trans and then like print it on the printing press. So you cut out the church and everybody can interpret their own Bible and it could be a happy community of believers. What he didn't know was that people interpret it differently. So what happened next, David? 
what what <laughs> what so that was that was like 1500 uh, the 1517 what happened within 100 years of that it was a, little, it was a war yeah the 100 year, the, the 30 years war yeah. what was the war about david uh, <laughs> uh, interpreting the, the word of god <laughs> yes, so, so basically uh, this was about uh, <laughs> from a modern perspective esoteric ideas like their trinity or what yeah. but it was very serious. If you scale, scale it up to modern population levels, like a billion people of a bee would die. So fatalities. It went on for 30 years. And the, 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 the uh, yeah, war was about who gets to say. Over the interpretation of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically people didn't agree. Now, recently, Mark Zuckerberg had a similar vision. He's going to just connect everybody and uh, we're going to be a happy community of sharers, I guess. But the problem was the details of how people connected. And people connected in a tribal fashion. You see this worse. Twitter's worse. See, it's worse on, on Twitter. You have these two camps, or more than that, and they're not posting things to convince the other side. They're posting things to cheerlead they're these uh, status, score status points. Uh, and I'm very concerned about that, because last time we had that, we had within 100 years with the 30 years war, today things move faster. So what happens in 10 years from now? You're scaring me so much, Pascal. I'm very worried. So, but, but it <laughs> You're could the go, pessimist on the No, 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 no. I just said it could go either way. We could, we could acknowledge that we're going to all... We agree, basically we agree, disagree. We have yeah. different backgrounds and our brains built and we yeah. live in a modern environment that disagreement well, is inevitable. The question is how do we resolve it? There are several communities that are trying to like yeah. affect like, the like places you. where we actually meet up. Yeah, like, like gonna, you, like the podcast. Yeah, there's a change, change, my view is open, yeah, change a right. view. There's a place called Kialo. There's a couple of places where they're like, hey, maybe we could go over here and talk. Right. Um, but getting people to, to adopt a new social media service at this point, you know. Right. And, and, and what worries me, so maybe that's pessimistic, what worries me is that disagreement has become a marker of, oh, you're a bad person. I know I'm right, so you're either crazy or malicious or ignorant or all of those. Yeah. And that's not good. That, I'm worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. What let, about? Let, let me ahead. layer on two things from moral psychology to make Pascal's dark vision even darker. It's not. Um, I'm just worried. One is that there's lots of research <laughs> on how we judge somebody's moral character. And most of the research finds that if they do one bad moral thing, that taints them. And so if you say one bad moral thing, if you're on the wrong side of one issue, people mm. will judge you by that. Um, whereas it takes lots of morally good things to be judged morally good. Um, the other thing I think that's, that's challenging is that with, on social media, you, you don't see, you don't have the triggers for empathy. People, yeah. you've both been talking about cognitive empathy. You lose person's emotion. You lose a sense of the human behind it. I used to think of a bar as like, an argument could get out of hand at a bar. Um, but now I think of like the bar is the safe place to have like a good argument. <laughs> um, because you can see the other person. Because you can see the other person. You can have a conversation. You, it's kind of a place where it's natural to disagree and, and kind of be loud and, and those types of things. So it's kind of like, a, it's an interesting thing. So Molly Crockett, a collaborator of mine at Yale, has research showing that a daily diary study where they analyze over a thousand people just going around their life, what triggers moral outrage? Mm -hmm. People are more triggered by what information they see online now than what they see in real life. So we talk about real life and online. For most people around issues of morality, online is real life. That's where they're yeah. getting uh, reactive and angry and worked up uh, and animated against other people. And so um, that struck home to me that it, this is not a trivial source of information for people in the way that it, I think it used to be. Brian, you've been mighty quiet. You represent another realm of academia. In the human is there anything you can add to this that maybe will make us leave here tonight not feeling dread? Well, um, <laughs> Pascal definitely stole my line uh, about uh, what happened after Gutenberg. 
But to go back to the question of, of cognitive empathy, um, Husserl's, Husserl's use of cognitive empathy was to get us to the world. Um, and, but Pascal reminds us that post-truth is something that is not a, a recent thing. It right. is something that is part and parcel of being human. Hmm. And um, as part of the, the moral tribe in the humanities, in the academy, we often get blamed for having created post-truth with philosophical movements like post-structuralism and deconstruction. And as um, there's, there's a sense in which the relativism that runs rampant in the humanities leads us to post-truth, but there's also a sense in which that relativism can lead us back to the individual. And so perhaps a way to say uh, post-truth is also to say human. When you look at the dress and you say, well, there is a dress in the world and it was black and blue, uh, that's fine. But your interest might not be in there being a dress. Your interest might be in why do we have different opinions and come to appreciate how those different opinions arise. So again, perhaps the post-truth is a return to the human. Whoa, I love that so much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna uh, let everyone ask a question or two before we go, but before that, that's sort of the end of the show and I want everyone to just give an insane round of applause for all of these very smart people. Wow, the human. Um, we run. We started a little late. We we run over, but we started a little late. So I think before we say goodbye, if anyone has any questions, there's a microphone here. I think that's what works. Uh, or you can just probably we're so close to each other, you can just shout it out loud. Uh, let's do maybe five or so questions, and then we'll close it out. Go ahead. Me? Yeah. It's me. You're right there. But so my question is, thank you natives. My question is, when you shift those folks who are, let's say, in a bi, trans, multi-grievance, bisexual, biracial, multilingual, what have you, how do you see that affecting bias, your interpretation of truth, when everything that you experience is both and, as opposed to either or? Everyone. Um, I guess I'll weigh in if no one else weighs in. I think a lot of things, so identity doesn't have to be either or, us versus them. Um, we can accept that there's gradations of identities. In fact, uh, there's great research on this from Marilyn Brewer who shows that the people who have the most complex differentiated identities often show the least prejudice, for example. Um, it's the people who have where every single identity fits within the same Venn diagram, you know, all the identities fit in one circle, that you see those people are very anti-anybody other than them, any outsider. So I think that, and, and this is one of the things that's cool about living in a place like New York, you bump into all kinds of different people, it's super diverse, um, and different perspectives. And so I think one thing that does is it opens our minds to different perspectives and you walk down the sidewalk, you hear like three or four different languages being spoken. Um, so I think that there is the potential for more complexity. I, I will say, unfortunately, this is why American politics, I think, is structured from an intergroup relations perspective to go badly, which is that there's us versus them. There's really two dominant parties. 
as I said, I'm from Canada, and in Canada there's like four different parties, and one of them, their main goal is to just separate from Canada. Um, so, so, so it's just like not even on the, the normal left-right spectrum. And so once you end up in those systems, there's other problems that arise, obviously, but it also lets people think in more complex ways about who they might support and what policies changes the conversation a bit. And so I think there's the potential for complexity, and I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's usually a good thing. Hmm. Yes, right here, in the front. Thank you. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like a trolling comment at all. Uh, but I, I, I think you hear a lot of people go, in the good old days, the good old days, you see things in a sort of rose-tinted glasses sort of way. The whole idea of post-truth, was there ever a truth era that we're looking back on fondly that is better than what it is today? Or is it just that things are so sort of absurd and we're hearing so many difficult opinions about the way things are based on the inaccuracies of perception, that it's just magnified to be worse than it ever was? Because I feel, I feel like we're having the same conversation over and over and over again. It doesn't seem that different, it's just more amplified. Yeah, it seems like there's a panic that comes with this. That's, that, that's, that's the big element right. of this. Why are uh, we so panicked about this? So, I mean, as we discussed, I mean, the idea that different people can interpret the word of God differently is an old old idea. Um, I think the reason why this is now in our face, because on social media, you cannot pretend that people agree about everything. It's more visible, what I'm saying. So, so on social media, I'm not going to lie to you. Until recently, I thought everybody kind of agrees with me about everything, right? Um, but, me too, me too. But now, like something... It's called a useful delusion. Some, something <laughs> happens, and you're like... like you see people post posting stuff, and initially I thought they're trolling me. They're like, they're like, like just they're doing it ironically. They're like, no, they actually believe that. And it's no matter what happens, someone's gonna post a hot take. We're like, whoa, what are they actually smoking? But they're, but they're, but they're, but they're usually sincere. Even, even, even David, back me up on this. Even the flat I, earthers, even the flat earthers are for the most part sincere. They sincerely believe that. Yeah, flat earthers. One, I mean, you know, there's for the most part. There are a portion of the community that, that's debatable, but there are plenty of them that want, yeah, they definitely do believe the Earth is flat. They will yeah. fight you over. So, it, yeah. so I think it's such a more visible now. Like, like uh, no matter what happens, I see a hot take of somebody on social media. I'm like, whoa, I guess I was, I was not. This is called the false consensus effect. Uh, people will assume that everybody else is like them. So there's research showing that uh, comic book nerds think everybody reads comic books, and I got into a huge fight with them once, one of them once, because I was like, bro, most people don't even read. But he, but he, <laughs> but he was like, yeah, most people read comic books. I was like, no, they don't. And this is very well established. <laughs> if, you do, if you do anabolic steroids, you think most people do anabolic steroids. You, you think, simply because of the typicality of mind, you think most people are like you. And on social media shows us, oh no, that's not true. You, you're odd, we're all odd. Yeah, I, I wanna add a social media comment. So I've done research on this. Uh, Billy Brady is one of my students. He's the lead author on this and he's here. Um, when people talk about political issues online, um, there's certain language they can use that is associated with like creating these echo chambers. So people can talk about gun control, climate change, uh, same-sex marriage, these were the issues we studied. Um, and when the moment they start using moral, emotional language like hate, anger, disgusted, um, Things go viral, but only really within their own little echo chamber of ideologically similar people. And so you create what looks like a cell dividing in two, mm -hmm. people on the left, people on the right, and they're not sharing or really engaging with people from the other side. They can be talking about the exact same issues in different using different language, and you're much more likely to see crosstalk. Now the problem is it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, that type of language 
every time you use a moral emotional word on Twitter, it's 15 to 20% more likely to make your message be shared. So you add three or four words like that, it's, it's you know, 60% more likely to, to be shared. And so that's what we want often when we post on social media. We want things to get liked and be shared. But the problem is we, we don't see this because there's no dislike button. Um, but what it's doing is alienating a large, when you use that language, it's, it's creating the, the division. And so mm. that's partly the, the economy, the reward structure mm. and incentive and reinforcement structure of the platforms that billions of people are on now um, and is the main form for their expressing their beliefs and identity incentivizes the type of language that right. seems to be divisive. Um, on, on that note, um, <laughs> on what to do about this, uh, the brain has inhibitory neurons. That means that there are signals that are spreading, but there's also neurons that inhibit these signals. I was going to have a seizure. What you get on Twitter and social media is you see people bl sharing blatantly false things in inflammatory language, but I cannot push a quench button that quenches it. <laughs> I think social media systems need inhibitory neurons to quench inflammatory, hateful, uh, um, and false messages. Basically, I'm not sure in the current system that the truth always wins or the good things win. Yeah, it's obviously these are, the, all this has to do with the context, and we've right. created, we, these are artif artifice. We yeah, created yeah. these places. So, we so, could create other places. So Jay nicely described what a seizure on Twitter looks like. Um, if you have probably no have time for one more question. What we have? Somebody deeper in the back. Yeah, right there. That's you, yeah. <laughs> So the question is, uh, gun control is, is framed as a life or death thing, more, more, less than a, this is my personal belief versus your personal belief, and let's work it out. Uh, is, am, I, am I saying that correctly? Uh, so um, why is that? Yeah, so I'll say again, this cuts to moral psychology, which is that the moment that you feel threatened or that harm is at stake, harm is like probably the key ingredient for moral judgments, that you're more, you feel like people are being harmed or you might be harmed. Um, it moralizes an issue, and that makes it divisive. And so people who are for gun regulation see school shootings and turn on the TV, and it's horrific, even if they don't feel themselves threatened. Um, it's horrifying to see that. And so they see harm happening to kids, and they want gun regulation. The unfortunate thing is that there's other people, when they see that, they see the harm of the government taking their guns away, and they feel threatened by that. And they feel that puts them at harm. And so you have harm happening, unfortunately, the harm just gets amplified for both sides and makes the issue more polarizing. Um, you know, this is independent of my own attitude towards gun control. I'm just trying to explain the psychology of harm, moralization, and polarization around this issue. And so it just amplifies. In fact, every time um, there's, there's uh, shootings, I, I'm on a project on gun control now, trying to understand it. Um, it's a hard issue to study because when there's shootings and we talk about regulation, that actually gun sales go up because people anticipate there's gonna be regulation, they buy more guns, especially assault weapons. And so it is a really perverse incentive structure and it's around morality and perceived harm 
but it, it just makes the situation worse. It's mm. like quicksand. The more you struggle, the more it sinks. Okay, this is dreadful. Um, the uh, I, I I want to let us leave on a on a on a somewhat hopeful note. Show more uh, kids' drawings. I, 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 I should have loaded the end of this with all of your drawings, um, but I want to do it with sort of a "you are not so smart" uh, uh, tint to it. Uh, this is a way you could possibly change people's minds uh, using some of the lessons we learned from. Uh, from tonight's discussion. So here we have this uh, political survey, mm -hmm. very simple survey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have uh, five uh, statements here. Okay. You have uh, scales going from uh, zero to 100, where zero means that you completely disagree, uh, and 100 means that you completely agree. And your task is basically to put a mark, like an X, mm -hmm. on the scale where it best represents your view on these issues. So he's asking them to mark what they believe about these different political issues on a scale, and while he's doing that, he's secretly saying some of the things they said, but changing some of their answers to the complete opposite, and then he does a little magic we trick. We reversed the participants' responses using a magic trick, and we found that only a few of these reversals were corrected and detected by, by the people we, we talked to. We can take this one more. Hospitals and healthcare should be privatized. You don't really agree with that? Uh, no, I'm a little bit on the fence with this one. Uh, I'm hesitant to ag agree They're with explaining it why they said something yeah. they did not so say. I'm kind of a and what's more interesting is that there is this side effect that's called choice blindness. blindness. And what that entails is that if you, if you ask a person, okay, so say that someone would ask you to fill out the survey. Uh, that person will then change all of your responses, or some of your responses. Do you think that that's something that you would notice? And everyone says, yes, I would definitely notice that. Sorry. If I would like yeah. change your responses you using a magic it? trick or something like yeah. that, do you think you would notice that? Yeah, I think so. Is there anything that you felt was like out of the ordinary? Me personally? Yeah? The questions or my answers? Well, the, the, the answers to the questions. No, I think I've pretty got a pretty solidified political view that I've yeah. developed. While you were filling out the little survey, I was copying some of your responses and then some of them I was shifting to the other side. Um, so if we look at the government should be able to monitor phone calls. I didn't even, how did I not You put that? like 70% here, yeah. and I moved it here to, to 10%. <laughs> if we... Wasn't paying attention. If we take this, this welfare item again. Yeah. So your response was actually almost on zero. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. But you had uh, no difficulty in, uh, in uh, discussing why it... <laughs> no, I didn't. You're right. Like people are baffled by the results. I can't believe I fell for this. I can't believe anyone falls for this. Um, but it's easy to be, to be wise in, in hindsight. The thing is that it's a very robust effect. Most people fall for it. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Uh, it doesn't matter what the situation is. Thank you everyone for joining us here at the first live uh, taping of the You're Not So Smart podcast. Round of applause for everyone that's been here. Ah, I'm sure.
sure everybody will be sticking around. If you want to mingle and talk to them, please join us. Thank you very much for coming. That last video segment in the live show came from a really cool documentary called The Science of Magic and the segment on choice blindness and using choice blindness to change people's political opinions. We will actually have the people who did that study on the show in the future. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. If you would like more episodes, if you'd like show notes, you can go to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also get past episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else that you can find podcasts. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McCraney. Also go to Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart for updates on all sorts of things, for more live shows like this, and for the video that goes along with this. Also in the show notes for this episode, you will find links to each of the guests, Jay Van Babel, Pascal Walsh, Moira Dillon, and their work. An enormous thank you to The Bell House, who did a lot of hard work when it came to the stage and setting everything up, the audio and all that. And, um, you know, if you want to support this show, it's a one-person operation. Even the live show was a one-person operation except for the hard work of the people at The Bell House. So you can do that. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash smart. Contributing at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you can get t-shirts, posters, signed books, and more. Several months of new shows are coming after this one. 